All views expressed in the Heritage Science Podcast are the opinions of individuals and do not represent ZEHA or any of its partner institutions. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Heritage Science Podcast, the show brought to you by students of CEHA, the Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology. I'm Hayley Simon and today we'll be taking a closer look at the field of heritage science. Joining me today are three guests who have played a key role in the development of the discipline. Sir Philip Campbell, the Editor-in-Chief of Nature, Professor May Kassar, Director of CEHA and UCL's Institute of Sustainable Heritage, and Professor Matthias Sterlich, Deputy Director of both CEHA and the Institute for Sustainable Heritage. Thank you all for coming on the show. May, uh, you began your career in history and conservation. Did you find you quite naturally moved into heritage science? Uh, no, I did not move naturally into heritage science. I moved naturally into preventive conservation first, and from there into heritage science, specifically to understand the underpinning evidence that supports preventive conservation decision-making. Can I just briefly interrupt you? Do you mind explaining what preventative <coughs> conservation is for people who might not have a conservation background? Okay, so um, normally conservation is active. It is about treating objects that are deteriorating. Preventive conservation is a little bit like preventive medicine, where you actually step in and control the conditions in advance of a problem developing. So preventive conservation equals preventive medicine. What I found when I became more closely involved with heritage science was a rather bewilderingly fragmented area of research with cross-disciplinarity seemingly maintaining segregation rather than uh, imparting strength. It was also rather invisible to policymakers, to decision makers. And that was about 30 years ago. So the last 30 years have seen a lot of change. Matia, you come from a slightly different angle, so you were from a more pure science chemistry and you've moved into this more applied science. How did you make that jump? It wasn't much of a jump, really. Uh, it was more a slow immersion, I'd, I'd say. I've always been torn between arts and sciences and like many of us, I suppose, I tried my luck with art and I think the world of art is probably grateful I didn't progress. <laughs> And I started off as a chemist. Then uh, shortly before finishing my studies as a chemist, I did a year of studies uh, at the University of Ljubljana of uh, art history. And then I did a year in book conservation. So I tested myself to see how I like conservation. I like doing manual work, manual conservation, but then I thought that considering that I studied chemistry, I could benefit the field best if I could apply my sciences in the field of conservation. So uh, even during my studies, I, um, I trained myself and um, I did my PhD in the field of heritage science. And from then on, in, it went very, very fast in international collaboration. And then I moved to UCL in 2007, and here I am. So, Philip, so you're quite well known as a publisher and a physical scientist, but how have you been involved with the more cross-disciplinary areas of science? Well, we at Nature handle multidisciplinary work, and so it's been very interesting to see how that's grown, for example, in areas like biology, where often when you're looking at, say, the behaviour of cells in organisms. You need physics and materials research and chemistry to understand how that works. <coughs> Seeing how that works is really interesting from an editorial point of view. 
because when you're selecting papers and you've got referees coming from many different backgrounds, they all look at it on their own terms. So we as editors have to really try and span that difference. But I think what this centre is about, in, and this, this whole exercise in heritage science is about, it exemplifies the, one of those areas where you absolutely need the different disciplines to, to, to achieve what you need to achieve. And I think that's what these other disciplines I'm talking about have found. We've been talking quite a lot about heritage science and we've managed to make it to sort of episode eight of this podcast and we've never actually really got down to the bottom of what heritage science actually is. So what is heritage science? Mattia, maybe you can help us answer this question. It's surprisingly difficult to respond to that question because the field, as you mentioned yourself, is so intensely cross-disciplinary. Some people say that heritage science is simply application of any science to any heritage arts or archaeology-related research question. But if we look from a more strategic point of view, the first two reports that were published in 2010 Uh, very efficiently defined heritage science as the science of management of cultural heritage and the science of understanding of cultural heritage, where the management part refers to how we manage environments, materials, buildings, sites, or data in order to both preserve them better, but also in order to provide access to such uh, formats or typologies of cultural heritage. And the second report looked more into our understanding of the past through better understanding of heritage itself. And I think that provides a very nice definition of what the intensely cross-disciplinary scientists in this field do. When we use this term cross-disciplinarity, what do we actually mean? Perhaps Philip can give us a bit of insight on this. Um, We mean, actually, a field that's in danger of falling between cracks, I think, (laughs) because um, I think uh, any multidisciplinary field, and heritage science is definitely amongst these, doesn't fit neatly within the standard academic disciplines. And although people have been talking about multidisciplinarity for decades, it's still a learning curve for everybody to really make it work. And I have to say it's a credit to some of the people here sitting at this table that heritage science hasn't fallen between cracks. It got highlighted by the House of Lords. And um, I think there are people in the research funding agencies, I hope this is still true, who actually do see it as a part of the landscape that needs to be supported. You say we've used kind of two terms here, cross-disciplinary and multidisciplinary. Is there a difference between those two terms? I'll just quickly say yes. Multidisciplinary can just mean a lot of different work going on within individual traditional disciplines that sort of relate to the same theme but don't necessarily together cohere. But interdisciplinary or or cross-disciplinary actually does mean that you're all working together on a goal in a way that hopefully is coherent and maybe even integrated. I think we're kind of seeing this almost emerge in sort of the journals and the publications that are related to heritage science because some of the listeners may be aware that there's a journal that's just aimed specifically at heritage science called the Heritage Science Journal and being so involved in publishing have you noticed a more emergence of journals that are targeted towards specific cross-disciplinary Yeah, so I think um, I won't go on about the nature journals, but uh, I can't resist saying that we have been launching some journals that are thematic. 
Um, we've launched traditional disciplinary journals, but for example, uh, Nature Human Behavior, Nature Sustainability, which we're launching next year, these are multidisciplinary journals. And the number of papers that come in that are truly multidisciplinary, that are truly integrated as, a, as pieces of work is a, as a minority. Heritage science, I think my colleagues here know more about heritage science than I do, but it is actually published by our company, and I do know they have the ambition to make it as multidisciplinary as it can be. Perhaps I could talk a little bit more about the journal Heritage Science, um, because Heritage Science, it, as published by Nature Springer, is one of the few journals in our field that specifically focus on this cross-disciplinary area of research. And I've been involved as a member of the editorial board on, on the journal, and I've seen an increased number of papers that are more and more cross-disciplinary and integrated. And uh, I think that journals such as this and perhaps a few other journals in the field are making an incredible contribution towards the identity of this field such that it doesn't fall between the cracks as, as Philip was addressing or saying earlier. So what are some of the main challenges between the arts and the sciences? Uh, I'll give you an example. I, I can talk about the humanities and the sciences where I was struck by how in some areas which are to do with particular scientific challenges, everyone can see what the challenge is, whatever their discipline, and they will just get on with it. But I came across a case where a philosopher was working with a neuroscientist on the question of identity of sufferers from a neurodegenerative disease. So as that person loses their sense of identity, what, can, what are the research questions around that? There definitely are implications as that happens, both in terms of therapy and in terms of just how that person relates to the world. And the philosopher and the neuroscientist took a year to understand how to frame the problems, working with sufferers to do so. So as long as you bring all the parties together at the beginning of the project so that you're all working together to frame what the real research questions are, you have a good chance that it'll work out. We mentioned before about this House of Lords report that kind of led to the birth of heritage science. What were actually the main findings? One of them focused on the demographic time bomb that all heritage scientists, conservation scientists, building scientists, collection scientists, conservation scientists, were actually getting older. And there wasn't a young generation that was coming through. The field was also very fragmented, as you have heard me now describe them as building scientists, conservation scientists, and archaeological scientists, in fact. Um, there wasn't coherence. And so speaking to decision makers um, wasn't easy because they were getting a slightly different message. There was also a chronic underfunding for research and development in this area. And therefore, the two main recommendations were that we needed to become more coherent, and that was something that the field needed to do for itself, but that it also needed help by public policymakers and funders to actually help uh, the field develop into the future. So those were the two main recommendations. There was also, at that time, quite a visionary recognition that actually the involvement of the public, the engagement of the public in heritage science was going to be critical to its future. And I think the reason why heritage science has developed with such an outwardly focused view of engaging with members of the public 
with actually the development of citizen heritage science in particular, but also more broadly engaging with every different uh, social demographic group it has emerged from then. And that's something that heritage science is quite uniquely placed to be a leader on the engagement with citizen science because you've got so many museum visitors, so many members of the public that are already engaged with the heritage that they can do citizen science. Um. It's also because I think the public is genuinely fascinated by both heritage and science. And so when you bring them together, uh, the fascination is amplified. Definitely. I'm sure all of us, when we've been speaking to people about what we do on a daily basis, anyone who's involved in heritage science, you just instantly see the fascination on their mm. face. Just like, wow, I never knew you could do that. You can learn so much um, about heritage from, from the science. And now we're, what, 11, 12 years on from this review. If it was to be run again, what would you think the findings would be now? I think there's always going to be the need to continuously make the case for the need for public funding for this re for research. It is the work that heritage science does potentially is a public good. And when you have a public good, then there needs to be um, support by the public purse. So that's one. I think what we should be thinking about as heritage scientists are the higher social aims of heritage science. It is absolutely critical that we see heritage science within a broader societal context. And that means that we need to develop the public engagement element of heritage science, take it beyond that to looking at how we can develop citizens that are actually actively involved, because that can deliver social change, and from social change can emerge social justice. And that was a theme that I developed last year at the uh, second CIHA conference in Oxford. So th this can kind of feed into what Philip was saying before about the challenge of work between arts and sciences and that you have to have people addressing the collaboration right at the beginning. So I guess this is something that should be fed into proposals and research right at the start, the, the social impact and the engagement with the public. Yes, but I think also we need to be genuinely convinced that this is at the heart of heritage science because active citizenship means that it gives people a sense of belonging, that heritage belongs to them and they have the means by which they can engage with that heritage through science. So it is genuinely about creating equality and inclusion and it is not about the experts telling the public or citizens what they ought to know. It is about listening. It is about absolutely listening to what the concerns of the public are in relation to heritage and how science can then support and help mitigate those concerns. It's quite interesting listening, talking about listening to the public. Uh, last week we were talking to um, Steve Trowell from English Heritage and he was saying that one of the projects that they've been involved with was looking at some of the more intangible heritage like the heritage of say the gay community and what buildings they would like to protect and what areas were important to them and they went out and had a survey um, and it was quite surprising some of the things that came back and gauging the local communities to be involved in um, directing the path of, of the heritage work. But let's not forget that there are consequences for researchers for that, en that engagement. 
it does mean that as the as citizens become more research aware, they will want actively to share in the stewardship, to share in the development of those research questions. And therefore, the narratives that we develop need to be inclusive. And that can be very uncomfortable for researchers where that have traditionally led rather than followed. I, I can just add something to that. In Britain, you know, we have a multicultural society. So when we use the word heritage, it's too often easily thought of as English heritage, traditional stamping grounds, which are lovely. But, you know, what about the ethnic minority groups, for example? Yeah, I think we have to, uh, we have to ask whose heritage are we talking about? And I think very often um, when we talk about that inclusivity, we see it in terms of the indigenous populations. But if you look at North America with the Native American Indians and also with the indigenous uh, Aboriginal populations in Australia, what the uh, Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian has been doing for years is actually bringing together the leaders of the indigenous communities. And actually, they decide the extent of conservation treatment that happens. They decide what happens to their material, even though it is accessioned museum material. These are materials that still belong to the community. If I could just add to that, a couple of years ago, we concluded a study at UCL, Institute for Sustainable Heritage, looking at how visitors at libraries and archives engage with cultural heritage on a daily basis. And what was incredibly interesting in that project is that we required the expertise of experimental psychologists, the expertise of social scientists to engage in that kind of research. And as we move forward, I think in, so in, in heritage science, we will, we will need to increasingly engage with social science and arts and humanities in order to actively engage with visitors and users of heritage, of heritage on, a, on a daily basis in our research. And in that research, what came through quite strongly is that users of cultural heritage have views on how heritage should be preserved or what they find exciting about degradation of heritage. And those views challenged the views of experts. And this is what perhaps illustrated May's point earlier, that scientists need to come out of the of the ivory towers and listen to visitors and those who engage with heritage on a daily basis and they might find opinions that will challenge their uh, expert opinions i think this is an absolutely crucial point because when you're trained as a scientist you're trained to sort of eliminate the human element as much as possible and I'm particularly interested by your comments about bringing in social science and the humanities where they take a lot of effort to consider all possibilities that includes the human side of of anything whatever research area they're studying and it can be quite difficult for a scientist who has that background where they're they're trained to reduce the amount of human impact and the amount of bias from their own personal views and how that impacts on the research and there's a lot of lessons that can be learned there but i think we have to be clear that when we're talking about social science although you're doing qualitative research, you're still getting rigorous uh, methodologies in order to address research questions. I think what I'm trying to 
push things beyond is actually starting with a blank sheet of paper where you actually go out and before you even have your experts lined up is understanding what is exercising citizens in terms of their heritage and then putting the research group together to address those questions together with citizens. And there is a philosophical question there as well, whether heritage science can be unbiased at all. Because by addressing a piece of heritage or a heritage object, it necessarily deals with an object that has been socially defined as heritage. Therefore, in addressing that object, in, in increasing our understanding of that object, it, it speaks to people who have already assessed the object as heritage. So heritage science doesn't deal with um, experiments that can be easily repeated because the experiment of heritage itself cannot be repeated. I think the other point I would make about working with social scientists is that um, just in recent years we've been hiring social scientists on our editorial team and because our journals tend to be thematic, we're looking at climate change or we're looking at energy, um, social scientists however aren't boxed in like that in their thinking. If you're a sociologist you're looking at everything that's going on in society and the fact that the scientist is wanting to focus on a particular problem to solve it, the social scientists will be challenging right from the word go and saying well hold on in focusing that way you are assuming something about the sociological parameters and actually there's a lot of literature that shows that this too is important and that too is important so that it that makes it more interesting it makes it more challenging but we shouldn't think that social scientists even at the outset can just fit into the challenge as the natural scientist sees it so one thing i wanted to pick up on was me you were talking about and philip as well the experts getting together and talking with with the public there's a lot in the news at the moment about how expert opinion is not as valued as it has been in the past and people are sceptical people should rightly be sceptical of any, everything they hear but they're sceptical of expert opinions do you think there's a role for fields like heritage science that work closely with the public of improving the public's interaction with experts and academics? The obvious answer is yes but I would raise a word of caution that we have to be so careful in how we present ourselves as experts if we are going to succeed in doing that, because we could fall into the same trap that other disciplines have fallen into um, in, in proclaiming our expertise. And I think it is, more, it is much more difficult to listen than one imagines. So, I mean, we've all used the word we have to listen. I mean, what does it actually mean? And how genuine is it? And how much are we prepared to be fair to the public, to empower the public? to recognise their values in what we do and to give them the rights to their heritage that we claim as our own. This must be especially challenging if you're coming in to, say, a community that you're not necessarily part of, so you're doing a piece of research. Say, if I, as a Londoner, went into a North American community and Native American community and was trying to put my views on what is their, their their generations back and their ancestors and you'll never be as much of an expert in their traditions as, as they are so I completely agree with you that it's but you would never be that no exactly yes but you would work with the local representatives 
and they would be your eyes and ears and your guide and you would need to listen and accept what they're saying and not necessarily challenge it because if there is trust which there would have to be then you actually become more sensitive to the local context to the situation that you find yourself in and then you're more likely to succeed and this probably tells us how we should engage with the public as we do citizen heritage science because we shouldn't be approaching the public as experts if the public are going to engage in citizen heritage science we shouldn't see them as people who will collect data for scientists uh, we should engage with the public such that they present their views that they help develop a community of science that engages with heritage. And I think this is extremely important because with, um, with the limited number of conservators and scientists in the field, we will never be able to take care of all the heritage that we want to preserve. We need the help and we need to work with the public to define A, what we want to preserve, how long we want to preserve it for, and whether or not we can rely on the public in order to preserve the heritage with them. And that means taking risks. That means taking risks with the science that we do and with the conservation mm. that we do mm. and assuming that everybody wants to preserve and be good stewards of their heritage. Mm assume that they know more than we give them credit for and actually be prepared to accept that there may be some loss but that it's not deliberate that even we as experts when we care for objects it doesn't mean that we are successful 100% of the time all the time I have to hold my hand up and I will tell you that I still remember the first time that I was conserving a Roman metal brooch and it broke in my hand as I was looking at it under times nine magnification and I thought that I was the worst conservator that was ever created but it happens it just happens you try to avoid it you do all the risk assessments but if we do it as experts then we should trust the public to be at least as careful as we are and maybe more successful than we might be. I think there's certainly something to say for this in, in science as well. You often hear the final result, the final positive good thing that happened. You never hear about the years of mistakes and errors and just problems that happened to get that one positive result. Um, and perhaps there is scope for having publication of uh, negative results. Very interesting you should ask me that question because last week I was in a, a little roundtable discussion with postdoctoral researchers from many disciplines at Princeton. And the first question they asked was exactly that one. What, you know, what are you doing about the negative results? And my, my answer to that question is, well, hang on, because every time you talk about a negative result, you're talking about work that you have to put in to report it. So do we need to think of new ways of getting the failed attempts out there that may be less superficially rigorous than a proper full paper? Because if everyone was documenting everything with rigor, the whole system would seize up. At the same time, it is absolutely possible with electronic media to be much more transparent about the failures, to make sure the data are there. 
people will drown in the data, but nevertheless, it can be there and we can find tools to make it more accessible. So I think every publisher in science is thinking about that, but there is also the cultural thing. So if this center here we have here for heritage science can incentivize its younger researchers to publicize or publish their mistakes in a way that doesn't damage their careers <laughs> and it is in a sense they are incentivized in that direction to be more transparent that would be wonderful and it's a real challenge to do that but it also shows scientists in a very human light and is more likely to find the public more engaged by that because it could potentially give more confidence to the public that they're dealing with human beings just like themselves and that a normal conversation is possible. It's interesting you say that, May, because when, and I'm returning back to conversation and our mistakes, which all of us have done in the past, uh, it's interesting that the public actually like heritage not super preserved and looking shiny and, and fantastic. When, when we questioned six members of the public about the library and heritage collections at various sites, invariably they told us that they like their objects a little bit yellow, a little bit torn, a little bit not very clean, etc., etc., because they thought that that represented, that, that told a story about the object. They, they like heritage to look a little bit degraded because um, that means that such heritage has had a good life. Where do you see the future of heritage science as a discipline? Well, I would like us to move away from talking about a heritage sector because I think it's a little bit too woolly as far as I'm concerned. I think we should be talking the way other sectors talk about there being an industry. And I need to explain what I mean about that. I mean, there are heritage assets, and among the heritage assets that we have are not only landscapes and archaeology and collections and museums and galleries, but also language, culture, history, literature, and people. Those are the assets that we have that constitute our heritage. What do we mean by heritage industry? I think research is part of a wider heritage industry, but it is not alone. Enterprises, industry, companies, SMEs, are producing tools and processes that are actually making the economy much more vibrant, are helping to grow the economy. There are services industries like tourism that actually survive because heritage science can say, yes, you can, you can increase the number of visitors to such and such a place without causing too much damage. So as far as I'm concerned, there is a heritage industry that has one component that is to do with research, one component that is to do with enterprises, and another one to do with services. And how do we link those assets to heritage and heritage industry is actually through policy, through finance, and through professional associations. And we have to be mindful of the fact that we are so dependent on the public purse for the research that we do, is that we have to think about the contribution that we make to that economy that we actually are asking to continue to support us. 
I think that um, as we move forward, we, we also need to build the identity of the field a little bit more strongly. When we did a survey of heritage of 200 heritage scientists in the UK a couple of years ago, we noticed that approximately half of the respondents worked in universities, but a strong half of the respondents worked in public organizations, in the public sector, and in companies. So we are incredibly distributed across research organizations, and by research organizations I mean industry as well. We also looked at the background of heritage scientists, and about 55% came from science, technology, engineering, and maths, but almost a half came from arts and humanities, social sciences, and other backgrounds. So again, we are incredibly cross-disciplinary already. And also, you mentioned the, um, the issue of language and how when we say the same word, we mean different things in different domains. That's right. But this survey that we've done shows us that there is no big gap between the communities of scientists working in predominantly research-focused organizations and communities of researchers work, working in public organizations where that research is applied. There, there is no big gap in terms of the two cultures that often get mentioned. I think that's something that's reflected also in the research that you can do in both of these organisations. So some of the big heritage institutions, they're viewed equally on par with the university as far as the research councils are concerned. And as someone who is starting you know, a career in this field, I know that whether I stay in a university or if I was to go into a heritage institution, I would probably from a research perspective have similar opportunities and it wouldn't be detrimental to go to either of them and that's quite nice and unique in I think in heritage science that you can go to public institutions and have the same research opportunities as in a university and we're very lucky to have that. But I think also there is a third option which I think with CIHA we are preparing the students for a future where they might also freelance as heritage scientists that they do not need to work in the public sector, whether it is museums, galleries, libraries, archives, or universities. And what we that actually work in institutions need to do is make our facilities and our infrastructure available to freelance heritage scientists that can actually work independently of a public institution. Very interesting you mentioned that, May. With CIHA, we're obviously developing this capacity in the field, and it's incredibly humbling to be working with so many bright young minds. But at the same time, within the UK and more broadly in Europe, we're developing the European research infrastructure in heritage science. In this country, in the UK, we are thir there are 13 organizations currently discussing how we make our infrastructure available to more than 2,000 local and regional museums in the UK, but also more broadly, as well as to individual companies or industry wanting to access our laboratories or perhaps wanting to access our mobile heritage lab. And we're doing this in consort with our European colleagues more, more globally in order to make heritage science as connected as possible and in order to make m our infrastructures available to uh, anyone that needs access to them. But maybe we should add one more and that would be possibly individual heritage scientists mm, mm, mm. that might be accredited. So I raise the issue of heritage scientists 
as individual workers that could be accredited to access public sector facilities to do their work. Building on this idea of connection and the role of the freelancer, one of the ways that most science, or in this circumstance, heritage science is communicated is through publications. If you're working as a freelancer, how would the, the publication side of it come in? Well, we'll, we'll take a paper from anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a strong principle that you don't look at who the author is when you're... I know people don't believe this, but actually we reject really great scientists all the time. But uh, more seriously, it is, it is a very important principle that... Uh, it's the result that matters. So just to kind of finish up, as a nice sort of overview, what are your favourite bits of heritage science that you've worked on? May, can you, can you choose one? Uh, the favourite is, is working with the House of Lords Science and Technology Select Committee to make those changes, which as an individual, I was just banging my head against the brick wall for about 25 years. <laughs> Brilliant. And Matia, the same to you. It's it's really difficult to, to point to any, but the piece of research that I found most fascinating uh, in the last few years was a piece of research where we looked at, at large collections of objects and we looked at public attitudes towards those collections and we looked at the interaction between materials and environments all at the same time. Um, the reason why this is one of my most favorite pieces of research is because it required very, very broad cross-disciplinarity. And at one point in time, around the table, we were sitting an electronic engineer, a physicist, a conservator, a curator, a chemist, and an experimental psychologist. And it took us quite a few meetings to understand each other and the language that we were speaking. But at the end, I, I, I think we succeeded in producing that integrated model of understanding of collections. So though it may take a lot of work, the rewards are worth it in the end. I certainly believe so. Excellent. Thank you all for coming to talk to us. It was an enjoyable podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Heritage Science Podcast is brought to you by the EPSRC Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology, produced in collaboration with the University College London's Digital Media Department. If you have any comments or suggestions about the show, contact us via Twitter at SeeHerCDT, that's S-E-A-H-A-C-D-T, or using the hashtag HSPodcast. Alternatively, please email us using the address seeher-manager at ucl.ac.uk or through the website www.seeher-cdt.ac.uk.